Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. All right, let's talk about our public health emergency, the first one, the original one, and what's being done about it. So we had an all-party committee, and they agreed unanimously on this, which I thought, how often does that happen? It doesn't happen very often. In fact, the government doesn't even agree to all-party committees very often uh, doing anything. So in this case, the opposition wanted this committee, Premier John Horgan, authorized it. They gave the committee free reign to go out and take witnesses and hold hearings and study the matter and talk to experts. And the committee came back with 37 recommendations, unanimous. They deserve credit for that. Uh, That's important. And as you say, it doesn't happen very often. It does not. So let's talk about some of these 37 recommendations. Well, Uh, Sheila Malcolmson, the minister in charge of mental health and addictions, uh, welcomed the recommendations. She said, you know, it's good to hear all this feedback. She noted in passing that many of the recommendations deal with stuff that is already being done here. And that's important to note as well. What the committee is really saying is that everything we've done so far hasn't solved the crisis. The death figures show that. So we need to do more of what we were doing, and we need to spend more. Although they don't quite say how much that is, but clear many of their recommendations would require more resources, more funding. And for a point of perspective, the B.C. government, the New Democrats, uh, their five years in office have already spent almost $3 billion on these problems. So that's a combination of what they've spent on mental health and substance abuse programs. So it's not like they haven't been trying. And uh, Nikki Sharma, who chaired the committee, did a media availability yesterday, and my question to her was, how many of these 36 recommendations will take more money, and do you have any estimate of that, and do you have any sense of how open the government is to that kind of recommendation? And she said, that was not our job. Our job was to go out and come back and say what needs to be done. And that's what we've done. Whether or not the government wants to do all this or has the money to do it is another matter. And, uh, you know, Simi, the challenge with this thing has always been the public is concerned about it. They think we need to do more. They can see with frustration that everything we've done to date, the problem is still enormous. What is it, six people die every day of overdoses? Mm -hmm. I I wonder, despite the public having the best of intentions, where this is really on their priority list. The comparison, Simi, is often done to our response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but... That was an unprecedented event for everyone in the world. I don't know, I can't answer the question as to whether or not there is really broad public support for another enormous increase in funding on this issue and all the other things that need to be done, even if, and this is the big if, even if that means higher taxes, and crowding out other priorities like public safety and housing and cost of living and settling public sector labor contracts and all the other things that are taking up government resources. And speaking of other things like that, uh, let's talk about this family doctor situation because there's more to this, right? Yeah, so there was uh, 
understandable relief and praise for the family doctor agreement that was announced on Monday. Broad support needed to be done. I think there's a recognition that this ought to help recruiting family doctors. It should help. It's expected to help right away, keeping people from leaving family practice. So that's all to the good. Uh, The family doctor agreement overshadowed another agreement that was announced at the same time. So in addition to announcing this standalone agreement, which will significantly raise the pay of family doctors, raise the compensation, the government also announced it had reached a fee agreement with doctors of BC. That is a separate agreement. It provides over three years, mm, ballpark 14% overall increase in fees for all doctors, so that's specialist, rural doctors. The details vary depending on what kind of doctor you are, but the overall average is 14%, which is about what the government is providing in terms of pay increases across the public sector. That agreement needs ratification. Voting starts by doctors middle of November, will probably go to December. And I'm picking up some anxiety that it may not pass. No one's saying that officially. Everyone has their fingers crossed and are hoping. But there's an awareness out there, Simi, that 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 agreement is kind of being overshadowed by the family doctor's agreement, even though that is not subject to approval. That is simply a new government-funded program for family doctors. So then what happens if the other agreement is not passed? Well, uh, you go back to the bargaining table when an approval is turned down, right? And you'd go back and have to negotiate something else. Uh, And nobody wants to do that. But here's the problem someone explained to me. So the media, news media, bad old news media, has reported the family doctor agreement provides a 54% increase in compensation for family doctors. Well, if you're another kind of doctor looking at fees, um, you're looking at 3 or 4% uh, next in, in the first year of the contract on fees. So there, the, the thing I got was, well, you know, uh, the, the coverage kind of mixed up those two agreements, even though they are separate. But, you know, what if a family doctor, a person who isn't a family doctor, a specialist out there who has overhead and bills to pay and all sorts of other things and cost of living goes, how come the family doctors are getting 54% and I'm only getting 4%? That is a comparison of apples and oranges. It was patiently explained to me yesterday. (laughs) But, you know, um, at, at a certain point when you're voting on a pay agreement, You think self-interest, and there is a concern that there may be some confusion about these two agreements, even though they are separate. One needs ratification. The other one is just a new government program that will start in the new year. And the broader one that you talked about, too, that obviously would include a lot of specialists who have probably spent more time in school, so they might get their back up a little bit about that. Yeah, and you're right, Simi, and within, you know, having covered a bunch of these over the years, within any fee agreement, there are components, there are differences for different classes of of specialists, different fees for different procedures. There is often a debate among specialists because for some 
specialists. The technology uh, around their specialty has changed dramatically. The workload per procedure is less. And for other specialists, they're doing their specialty surgery or whatever it is, pretty much the same way their dad did or their mom did if they were a specialist. So, uh, you know, we can't in our coverage drill down line by line to how it all works and what the reservations are. All I'm saying is I picked up a bit of anxiety Mm. yesterday that um, this is still a selling job and the government is, I think, going to try to clarify some of the distinctions, including the statement they've made that the 54% pay increase that we've compensation increase that we've reported is an apples and oranges comparison. It isn't really that big when you take into account the fact that they're, for the first time, trying to cover overhead costs for family doctors who have a standalone practice and equalized them with family doctors who do not have an office, do not have a standalone practice, and work through hospitals. Right. When you talked about the technology change in the job, I couldn't help but think about ophthalmologists. So yeah, that's the yeah, big that, one, right? The cataract surgery? Yeah, that's the example uh, that people use. And, you know, I'm sure the ophthalmologists uh, probably don't see it the way others do. But yes, that's the example that's often used. Uh, the surgery is um, simplified. Uh, or made easier. It's no less risky, but if you're a skilled practitioner, it doesn't take as long. And that's an argument there, which a surgeon in another area might well say, well, you know, I'm getting the same fee as uh, I have for years, but my procedure hasn't changed, but yours has changed, and you're getting the same fee you have for years too. And if you've ever had cataract surgery, you know they line you up. It is like a factory when it's a day to have surgery for cataracts. No, I've not done that one yet, Simi, oh. and I'm hoping to hold that one at bay for a number of years. And please, if there's any cataract surgeon out there who hears me today, don't hold it against me when I show up <laughs> in your office. Well, I've had it done. I've had it done, so I know of what I speak on that one. Avon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi.